uh, what's wrong with the world? Uh, everyone's got an opinion, uh, except for Siri. I asked Siri, and Siri said I couldn't possibly say. So that was no, she was no use at that point. But I did Google the question, what's wrong with the world? And I got 1.84 billion hits. So everyone's got an opinion. Um, COVID, suffering, religion's what's wrong with the world, the environment's what's wrong with the world, or our lack of the ability to look after it, uh, the bad behaviour of kids today, it's what's wrong with the world, according to someone, uh, the high price of groceries, people pushing in in, in queues. <laughs> That's what's wrong with the world. Well, this, what is wrong with the world? The, the English author G.K. Chesterton wrote a book with that title, The Early Part of the 20th Century. Uh, to be honest, I haven't read it. I did look at the contents page. He has a lot to say on the subject, lots of chapters. But what G.K. Chesterton is best known for is something he wrote in the London Times. Uh, the paper invited a number of leading British authors to submit feature articles addressing that very question. What's wrong with the world? Chesterton's contribution took the form of a letter. Now, you would expect something fairly profound, something deep, something long uh, from someone who's written a whole book on the subject, wouldn't you? Are you ready for what he wrote? Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. Uh, concise, clear, devastatingly brutal, completely correct. I hope he didn't get paid by the word, though. It would be a very short commission, a very small commission. What's wrong with the world? His answer, I am. I'm what's wrong with the world. And so are you. We all are. Now, that's Paul's answer to the question as well, here in chapters, uh, Romans chapters 1 through to 3. What's wrong with the world? We are. Not just them, someone else, but all of us. Humanity is what's wrong. It was true in Paul's day, true in Chesterton's day, and it's just as true in our day. We're beginning today, verse 18 of chapter 1. Last week, finished with Paul's uh, well-known declaration that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's God's power to save people, uh, to rescue people. But rescue from what? What do we need rescuing from? Uh, it's only good news that a rescue is there if you know that you need to be rescued. And so Paul goes on to show us the danger that we need rescuing from. Uh, have a look at what verse 18 says. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Here's the danger we need rescuing from, God's anger, his judgment. But notice Paul's not talking about something that will happen on judgment day. He's describing something that's already being revealed. God's wrath is in the process of being revealed right now in this life. And God is angry at godlessness and wickedness. Sin is, this topic, is the topic all the way from verse 18 here through to verse 20 of chapter 3. And the point of the whole section is that everyone is guilty before God of sin. No one escapes. Now, remember back to what we said last week, there are two main groups who made up the church in Rome. There were the Jews and there were the non-Jews or the Gentiles. And I'm just imagining that they were sitting on opposite sides of the church. From what we know about the, the, uh, 
the disagreements between them, I'm imagining they might sit on opposite sides of the church. Uh, and the Gentiles are Paul's first target. He's, he's speaking to them from verse 18 to the end of chapter 1. And his big point is Gentiles are guilty before God. And then he turns his attention to the Jews uh, and uh, from the start of chapter 2 through to chapter 3, verse 8. Jews are guilty before God as well. Now the first thing he wants to say about the Gentiles is that they're guilty and that their ignorance is no excuse. Their ignorance is no excuse. God is right to be angry at them, verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them, God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what's been made, so men are without excuse. Do you notice that last little bit? It's no good saying to the policeman who pulls you over for speeding, but I didn't know. I didn't notice this, that it was a school zone. I didn't see the sign. The signs are there, he would say to you. It's your fault if you didn't see them. It's no excuse. Ignorance is no excuse. It's just for you to receive a fine. You are without excuse. And it's the same thing here uh, with God and people who haven't received the law. Paul's saying the signs of God are there for everyone to see. God has put them there deliberately so that people would recognise the creator from his creation. Verse 19 says God has made it plain to them. His fingerprints are all over the creation. The enormity of the night sky, the intricate design of unicellular organisms or flowers or snowflakes, the mind-boggling complexity of our human body. It just amazes me when surgeons or doctors describe what our body can do. The perfect balance of the water cycle or, the food, ch or, or food chains. God's created all of that. But instead of recognising and honouring the Creator, verse 18 says people suppress the truth by their wickedness. Or verse 21 puts it this way, Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. People chose to ignore the signs of God's existence. They made a conscious choice not to glorify him or thank him. So it's no good for someone to say, it's not fair, God shouldn't be able to judge me. No one ever told me about him. I didn't see any signs. Because what people do, instead of worshipping God, they choose to worship created things. Paul goes on to say from verse 22, they choose to worship idols, statues of birds or reptiles or animals, or gods that look like men. Verse 21 calls that thinking futile, uh, pointless, foolish. Uh, carving a crocodile out of a lump of stone or wood and then bowing down to it and asking its advice. It's just nonsense. It's foolish. It's uh, futile. Uh, we think it's foolish, but is it really any different today from millions of Australians uh, who bow down before sportsmen or singers or social influences. 
uh, or who worship their careers or their homes or their bank balances, who devote their lives to these things. And yet it's futile because it's so easy for them to go, to, to lose them. These idols rust, uh, betrayed, devalued, dismissed, malignant, inoperable, destroyed, dead. That's what happens to idols. It's futile thinking to, to, to give your life to things like that instead of to the God who created you. It seems foolish to us, but Paul goes on to say it's not a matter of being wise or foolish. It's not simply people with a low IQ who worship worthless idols. It's not a matter of being poorly educated. Paul says it's to do with your heart. Everyone has a condition, has a heart condition when it comes to how we treat God. Now, when the Bible talks about your heart, it's not talking about your cardiac muscle. It's not talking about your emotions either, as we talk about it in the West. When the Bible talks about your heart, it's talking about your basic identity, your natural orientation, the essence of what makes you, you. That's your heart. At the end of verse 21, Paul says their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 24, he says he talks about the sinful desires of their hearts. Our basic nature is to want nothing to do with God. That's what's wrong with the world. Our basic nature is that we want to be in charge and not God. We want to worship ourselves, not God. And that's what sin is. Sin is choosing our way over God's. Sin is an attitude that flows out to sinful actions. We might define sin as this law-breaking or that bad thing or, or that, but, but sin is the attitude of wanting to be in charge that produces all sorts of things, selfishness and idolatry and immorality and wickedness. But all of those are simply symptoms of the heart disease. Sinful hearts is what's wrong with the world. And so Paul goes on to describe that God gives people over to what their hearts want. That's his wrath that's being revealed, handing them over. What does that mean? It means he allows them to live out the consequences of their sinful orientation. He says it three times to the end of chapter 1. Verse 24 says, Therefore God gave them over or handed them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. Again in verse 26, God gave them over to shameful lusts. The same phrase again in verse 28. His wrath's being revealed by handing people over to what their hearts desire. That's his judgment now and it comes before the final judgment. So in that sense, his judgment that's being revealed now is a, is a gracious judgment. It's God allowing people to live out the horror of their heart's desires, to see the consequences of our heart's desires, to see the pain and the brokenness and the ugliness, to see where those desires will lead. And we get a glimpse of it before it's too late. God does it so that we might recognise the foolishness and the futility of our heart's desires 
and turn instead to the God who made us. Paul's point in chapter 1, God's God's wrath is being revealed against people's sin and godlessness in handing them over to the consequences of their actions. That's what's wrong with the world. Well, that's the Gentiles, those that don't have God's law. Now, you can imagine the Jews sitting over here on my right of church, let's imagine, uh, sitting there quite comfortably and perhaps smugly and having a little chuckle at the the Gentiles on the other side of church uh, as this first chapter is being read out. We're not like that. We know God. We know what he wants because we've got the law. Well, now in chapter 2, Paul turns his attention to the Jews. Chapter 2, he says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other... You're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Don't be so quick to point the finger, says Paul. Uh, Take a good look in the mirror first. Don't judge others because you're as guilty as they are. We've talked about how ignorance is no excuse for the Gentiles. But Paul's second point is that knowledge is no excuse either. Knowledge is no excuse for the Jews. Simply knowing the law doesn't give you a free pass to escape judgment. It's a bit of a long-winded argument, so so just jump down to chapter 2, verse 12, where it's sort of at its most clear, or begins to get clear. All who sin apart from the law, Gentiles, will perish apart from the law. All who sin under the law, Jews, will be judged by the law. See, just having the law, it's, it's not enough to escape judgment. If, you, if either side sins, if you know the law and break it, you'll be judged. If you don't, if you sin without having the law, you'll also be judged. A bit further down in verse 17, he makes the same point again, but, but he finally names the Jews as the ones that he's speaking to. Verse 17, he says, Now you... If you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship with God, if you know his will and approve of what's superior because you're instructed by the law, jump down to verse 21 where he says, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach about stealing, do you steal? His point is, just because you know the law, because you even teach the law, That means nothing. You've actually got to keep it. You've got to obey it. And his point is the Jews are not doing that. They they can't do it. The problem is not whether you know or don't know the law. There's a deeper problem. And Paul's point is that for the Jew, it's the same problem as for the Gentile. The Jew has a heart condition as well. Jump back up to verse 5. Paul's speaking to Jews, remember, and he says, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. The Gentile has a foolish heart, a heart that chases after idols. But the Jewish heart is stubborn and unrepentant. It knows God's standard, but but stubbornly refuses to keep it. It consciously turns away from what it knows. 
In lots of ways, that's worse than ignorance, isn't it? To know something and choose something else. It's a different symptom or a different set of symptoms, but it's the same disease. The lifestyle of the Jew would have looked very different from the Gentile Paul describes in chapter 1. That's perhaps part of the argument why he zooms in on on homosexual sin, perhaps. That that he wants to, to highlight how contrasting the lifestyles are for the Jew before he sort of hammers home to him home to the, to the Jews, that they're just as guilty before God. Both Jew and Gentile have a heart condition, whether it's a, a stubborn and foolish heart or, or a, um, a futile heart. Because it's the same disease, God is just to treat both groups the same. So verse 6, for example, have a look at how Paul talks about God's uh, justice. God will give to each person according to what he's done, to, to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality, he'll give eternal life. To those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there'll be wrath and anger. That's fair enough. There'll be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile but glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favouritism. That's the point. Uh, There'll be no pushing in, there'll be no jumping the queue, there'll be no special favours with God on the basis of what you know or what you don't know. God doesn't have favourites. And it all gets back to the root of what's wrong with the world, the root of the problem. Just having the law, it won't fix anything because the law's on the outside. The law is like putting band-aids and antiseptic on someone who has blood poisoning. It doesn't do anything for the infection. The solution for our sin has to be something that deals with our heart, with our heart condition, with our actual nature. We actually need heart surgery. We don't need a band-aid. We don't need the law. We don't need circumcision, something that's going to do something on the outside. We need heart surgery. Jump down to chapter 2 verse 28. Paul's speaking to the Jew who's confident before God because he's a Jew. And Paul uses the the idea of circumcision as the, the marker for what makes someone a Jew compared to a non-Jew. But he says circumcision, it can't save you, just like the law can't save you. What really works is to have your heart circumcised, not something on the outside. You need God to do a surgery in your nature. You need a spiritual heart surgery. You need your nature to be renewed. And God can do that whatever your nationality, whatever has happened to your body on the outside. So chapter 2, verse 28, he says, a man is a Jew, by that I think he means um, someone who is one of God's own people. A man is one of God's people if he is... Sorry, a man is not one of God's people if he's just one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. 
A man is a Jew if he's one inwardly, circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. What makes you one of God's is not any sort of law externals. It's whether God has done a work in your heart, whether he's circumcised your heart. That's something God's got to do. We're powerless to do it. But that's what his rescue is all about. That's what salvation is. Rescue from his wrath and judgment. Rescue that involves God doing a spiritual heart transplant on you, whether you're Jew, whether you're Gentile. We all need it. We all have the same problem. Jump all the way forward to chapter 3, verse 9, and Paul's conclusion, the point he's been hammering all the way through chapters 1, 2, and 3. Chapter 3, verse 9. What shall we conclude then? (laughs) Maybe they say, yes, finally, enough of all this stuff about sin. What's the conclusion? It's like the the speech, the person giving the speech, or the preacher who says, and for my final point, or in conclusion... And this is Paul. In conclusion, are we Jews any better? Are we Jews any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Male and female. Educated, uneducated. Rich or poor. Married or single young or old, we're all under sin. Busy and bored, babies and businessmen, black and beige, beautiful and bland, we're all under sin. All of us have a sinful, foolish, wicked, stubborn, unrepentant heart. All of us need a new heart. Only God can do that. A new heart that produces a new nature in us, that gives us a new desire, a new power, a new motivation to live the way God wants. We all need it. None of us deserve it. We'll see more next week about how we get it. But as we finish, a few points of application. We've asked the question, what's wrong with the world? And the answer is... I am. (laughs) We are. Uh, You are. You and I are what's wrong with the world. There are no innocent parties. We are all guilty. We all deserve God's wrath. Uh, Now, the application is actually one of the main reasons Paul is making this whole theological argument. He's been doing it for three chapters. Uh, This point about how everyone is guilty before God, the reason he's doing it is One of the main reasons is for the application. Jews and Gentiles in the church are not getting along. They're judging one another, they're pointing fingers, they're taking sides. And the application of this theology of everyone being guilty of sin is that we should be quick to forgive one another. If I'm sinful, what right have I got to hold a a grudge against you? I should forgive you because I'm just as guilty. We should show mercy. We should be humble. We should be slow to judge. What's wrong with the Roman church? They are what's wrong with the Roman church. What's wrong with Asheville Presbyterian Church? I am. You are. We're what's wrong with our church. 
So how about we show a little more humility and a little less arrogance? How about we be a little quicker to forgive and show mercy and a little slower to judge? And when you feel like complaining about church, that it's not as good as it could be, don't be so hasty to point the finger at the other problems you see around you. Have a good look in the mirror first. What can you do to change what you don't like about church in how you treat people or what your priorities are? Change yourself. You're what's wrong with the church. What's wrong with your family? What's wrong with your marriage? You are. Don't be too hasty to judge or accuse. Look in the mirror first. What can you change? Now, don't hear me saying that other people are blameless. I'm not saying that. Of course they're not. But the only person you're responsible for is you in a relationship. The only person uh, you can really work on changing is you. The only person you can influence is you. Here's another point of application. If, we're what's wrong, if, if you are what's wrong with the world, uh, it means accepting others. Not just theoretically, but practically accepting. Realistically. Having an accepting, tolerant, compassionate, understanding, forgiving attitude to others. A church is a hospital for sick people. It's not a beauty pageant. It's not a, a, it's not a contest for the best or the brightest or the smartest. Church is a hospital for sick people. We don't have it all together. I'm not better than you. We all need grace. We all need forgiveness. We all need acceptance. Or when it comes to those outside the church, those not yet Christians, those who haven't had the same information or the same relationships or the same opportunities as us to learn about Jesus, we're no better than them. Let's not judge their lifestyle or their choices or their behaviour. Let's humbly and lovingly point them to the one who's graciously saved us and, and who offers the same salvation to them. Let's offer what we know of Jesus as one beggar who's showing another beggar where to find bread. We focused on the danger of God's judgment, his wrath that's being revealed. But, but I want to finish at chapter 2, verse 4, the positive side of God's character. It's a great place to finish. Paul says that when we judge other people, we actually show contempt for the grace that God's shown us. Have a look at what he says we're showing contempt for when we judge. You show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, tolerance and patience. God's kindness leads you towards repentance. This is the God who's offering you rescue and salvation. He's offering you a new heart in place of your broken one. He's a God who's kind and tolerant and patient, who leads you to repentance. You don't deserve any of that. So give him the glory, give him the thanks. Humbly follow him and obey him as we show mercy and grace to one another. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, what a wonderful gift you've given us, uh, showing us mercy and grace, leading us to repentance. Uh, Help us uh, to be people who recognise that grace and rather than judging one another, recognise our own sinfulness and our own... uh, and and the grace that's been shown to us and help us to show that for Jesus' honour and glory. Amen.